Hi, you're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Erte Loketite from the Department of Philosophy. Welcome to the show, Erte. Hello. I am really interested in talking to you because you're a philosopher and I haven't talked to a philosopher before. And I was actually reading about you. There was an article that came out on a Berkeley site about how you're a philosopher. And you mentioned that philosophy depends on the philosophical method. And I hadn't actually heard of the philosophical method. So I thought it'd be a great way to start to have you tell us like what philosophy is in your own words and what is the philosophical method? Yeah, okay, sure, cool. So I might not be the best representation of of a philosopher um, for your first philosopher just because my work is so interdisciplinary. So there are people in the discipline that would sort of consider it outside of the bounds of the discipline proper or like philosophy proper. But you know, I, I don't think that. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, the philosophical method just has to do with sort of really careful analysis of what's going on. So, you know, you're, you're applying logic, you're applying arguments of analysis, you're applying all of those things. And if that's how you view philosophy and the function of philosophy and the, sort of the method of philosophy, then there is a sense in which you can apply that to anything. And that's partly what I really like about the field. You know, I could wake up tomorrow and decide that suddenly I'm interested in philosophy or biology and just teach myself a bunch of biology or whatever it is. You know, it could be physics, it could be chemistry. Apparently, there there are a few philosophers of chemistry now. And that would still all be, you know, justifiably part of my PhD work and part of my profession. So this is something I quite like about this kind of flexibility in terms of content. Okay, so you can have philosophy of biology, philosophy of chemistry, I guess like philosophy of politics, philosophy of literature, maybe. I recently saw something on philosophy of sport. But so like, what is the common thread that would link all of those things? Why would they all be philosophy? Yeah, so if if you, right, if we are talking about the sort of Anglo-American tradition of philosophy, which is something called the analytic philosophy, then I would say there are a few things that are kind of required for it to be philosophy. One of the main ones would be sort of the clarity of writing and precision of thought. There's a very particular structure to a philosophy paper. It's kind of the opposite of a detective story, in a sense. You can't have any suspense or any kind of surprise at the end or anything like that. It needs to be maximally clear, maximally precise throughout. And as long as you know, you're arguing for a particular claim around which the rest of your paper revolves, then again, as far as I'm concerned, you are kind of doing philosophy. I'm sure that that's a much broader kind of take on the discipline that many people would have, but that's, that's my take. So it's kind of like you write a proof like in high school geometry or something where you have a law... And then you say, okay, so if that's true, then this is true, then this is true, then this is true. That's essentially like how a philosophy paper would have to go. Yeah, pretty much. I, I would say that's that's kind of the method. So in that sense, you, and so you're saying you have kind of a broader view than a lot of philosophers. What like what's some common pushback that you would get from that point of view or on that point of view, I mean? 
So some people have a more specific take on not just the form of philosophy, but also the content of philosophy. So you could have some people come at you with, you know, claims like, oh, this is this isn't doing philosophy or this topic isn't part of philosophy or that that's not a philosophical question or something like that. And I think it would vary from person to person somewhat, depending on how conservative almost, but conservative not in a political sense, obviously, you are in, in terms of your view of the discipline. So, you know, some someone who's very kind of, well, a bit more extreme on this could just be philosophies like Kant and like Aristotle and things like that, you know, and, and metaphysics and epistemology. And then all of this new kind of stuff, some parts of philosophy of cognitive science, for example, or maybe, I don't know, decision theory or something. That's doing something else. <laughs> that's, not, that's not exactly philosophy. It's maybe too applied, for example. It's maybe too kind of empirically oriented to count as philosophy in, in the relevant sense. That's so interesting, though, that, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, Aristotle, we think of Aristotle, right? When we think of philosophy, or at least Western society does. It's funny that you say that, like, this kind of you use him as a narrow uh, idea of what philosophy is. But, you know, I am a biologist and Aristotle appears on the like first slide of some of the talks I give just because he has, you know, observations about the natural world. So, yeah, even holding up this person as an example of, you know, sort of narrowing the focus of philosophy then opens this door of like, well, he was clearly looking at all of these other questions and so why would you, if you were putting Aristotle as the ideal of a philosopher, why would you then limit what you, the scope of your questions are? Yeah, that, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And precisely, right, precisely because many of these historical figures had really wide ranging interests. And, you know, again, historically, what tended to happen is that, you know, all of it was philosophy in some sense, all the sciences what they were part of one package and then one by one you know they would move away over time so you have a sort of branching away of disciplines or like branching out of disciplines the last one of which arguably was psychology so you know someone like william james is very much a philosopher but also definitely a psychologist and now again more recently people tend to think of psychology as its own discipline that's very much separate from philosophy but yeah that that's partly why i think this kind of gatekeeping <laughs> as to what is part of a discipline or is not part of the, a discipline especially a discipline that is as wide ranging as philosophy i think that's kind of strange and a bit hypocritical in the sense that in the way that you point out so you brought up psychology, which is actually a good segue, I think, into the research you do. But before we do that, I just wanted to go back to the idea of the philosophical method. And now that, you know, you've pointed out that all of the fields are kind of branching out from, or historically, we're branching out from philosophy. It's so interesting, like the philosophical method. I thought that was like this interesting thing because, you know, I've always heard about the scientific method. Is the scientific method kind of a very specific case of the philosophical method or is it sort of like separate? Is the scientific method like for science? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really great one to think about in greater detail. So I do think that there's a lot in common, right? So the the systematicity of it, for example, the rigor that you kind of 
aim for. The thoroughness, I suppose. There are lots of things that are definitely shared. I suppose the main difference between the two methods would be that one tends to be sort of very data forward or like empirical findings forward. You actually have to go out there and perform some experiment and then get this, you know, these real world data and you can move from there. And philosophy is very kind of theory driven, right? So you are going to be mostly just kind of reasoning and thinking about it. There are now developments with some people trying to trying to make it more experimental. So there's this kind of subdiscipline of, of philosophy called experimental philosophy. And so what they try to do is sort of go out there and ask people what they think. <laughs> right. So one of the one of the things that philosophers do a lot is they come up with these thought experiments as kind of as kind of extreme cases to test some intuitions that you may have and some theories that you may have. And so traditionally what would happen is that a philosopher just kind of sits in an armchair and then thinks like, oh, in this thought experiment, my intuition is blah. And so that's that's the intuition. This is what I'm going to go with. It's not necessarily the case that everyone would share that intuition. <laughs> so again, in the past, someone else might have a different intuition and they're also a philosopher and you just kind of debate on you know that question. But of course, <laughs> there are more people in the world, most of whom are not philosophers. And so it definitely, well, it turns out that there's a lot of variation, unsurprisingly, you know, among the general population, let alone different cultures. So again, experimental philosophers kind of try to go out there into the field and get people's intuitions on different philosophical questions and then kind of, you know, theorize with that in mind. So you might say that they are kind of, you know, it's more empirical in that sense, seeing as you are now operating by use of real world data. But yeah, I think for the most part, it's definitely a lot more kind of theoretical. Even if you're using empirical findings, which a lot of people do, those are going to be gathered by, you know, people in other disciplines. So I think that's kind of the main difference between the two. Right, for sure. I'm thinking of like a science journal would have both primary literature, which would, you know, report experimental findings and, you know, data-driven hypotheses. And then it would also have reviews where people would get a little more into, okay, here are all of these studies. And so this is what I'm proposing. This is a framework that I would look at for these studies that I've read. And so that kind of might be more of where a philosopher might come in when on that review side. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. And I think in, in some cases, it becomes really difficult to tell what's what. So, you know, in cognitive science in particular, philosophy was one of the, you know, several kind of founding disciplines with linguistics, computer science, neuroscience, anthropology initially, AI, disciplines like that. It was very much part of that kind of initial group. And so when it comes to the study of the mind in particular, where our empirical kind of knowledge is still not particularly well developed, it's, it's going to be hard to tell whether, you know, this is a paper which is doing theoretical psychology or is this philosophy already? There's a lot of overlap. And again, you know, generally speaking, you might want to say that philosophers tend to kind of uh, consider questions that are maybe even (laughs) kind of more remote or like higher order even, such that, you know, 
we might need kind of even more time to even attempt to answer them. Um, so, you know, something like consciousness or something like that, which doesn't tend to be the sort of question that you would be tackling directly in neuroscience for the most part as of yet. But philosophers are very concerned with that. So, you know, but that's the sort of difference that's quantitative rather than qualitative in some ways. You brought up mind again. So wait, but before we get to your research, <laughs> I, I wanted to go back to when you said, um, you know, when you were talking about a philosopher would be there uh, and have some line of reasoning that the philosopher was going through and then say, this is my intuition, um, which might not be shared by others. If you're coming at that, like looking at that as someone who, you know, has a scientific background and like looks for empirical evidence, you would see the limits in trying to approach a question if you wanted like scientific rigor to approaching that question. But I guess it's interesting then, I guess, what is the point of philosophy? Because I was thinking about, right, maybe you're not telling everyone a universal truth and you're coming at it from your own point of view, but like thinking about, you know, the arts and literature, like you don't want I mean, you want to access something that's universal, but you also can't really produce like art and literature or something that's personal, you know, and you, the goal, I guess, is to cross over from a personal something to a more universal, like that would be the greatest work of art, right? Like something that could take your personal experience or whatever that you put out into the world and then access a universal truth. And so I was wondering, like, from that point of view, is philosophy kind of more in that realm of uh, approaching like truth and ideas kind of taking a personal point of view and you know maybe you're not saying the right thing but you're allowing people to explore the idea does that make sense <laughs> yeah that does make sense and and good question i mean the thing about most philosophers within the analytic tradition is that I don't think they would agree that they're doing something personal, even when they're relying on like their their intuitions with respect to some thought experiment. You know, the general ideal definitely seems to be truth with like a you know capital T. Again, the field models itself more in relation to something like mathematics and logic, which again you might you there you might say it's not the case that they you know, mathematicians go out there into the world and get like empirical data and then reason from that. It's also mostly just kind of reasoning, right? It's, it's theory. It's you just sit there and you think very carefully and then you presumably discover some truths. So I think philosophers kind of tend to see what they're doing as closer to that than, you know, literature. So I also want to get to your research. So you study the philosophy of psychiatry. So why do you want to study psychiatry? Yeah, so I actually switched disciplines a couple of times, which is another reason why I'm not a sort of, you know, the most representative philosopher, certainly not Berkeley and in general. But so I started, I started in linguistics, then I moved to cognitive science, and then I moved to philosophy. So it's kind of been getting more and more abstract in a way. But I, I really appreciate having that empirical background to be able to theorize in a more empirically grounded manner. And so one of the reasons I got into psychiatry 
is because during my master's studies, I got into this cognitive science framework called predictive processing, which is kind of all the range <laughs> right now. It's, it's really exploding in popularity for good reason, I think. And so just reading through some of those papers and some of those models, I got really excited <laughs> that finally we might be able to say something more specific about what may be going on in psychiatric, you know, in psychiatric illness than we have been able to kind of <laughs> previously. It's such a mysterious field still, right? So a lot of people kind of avoid it. Many neuroscientists avoid it because we just don't know enough to be able to kind of, you know, progress in any linear fashion. So, you know, for the most part, the only people who would deal with it, you know, had no choice because they're clinicians and you have a patient and you have to deal with the patient. But so at the time, it seemed to me that this particular framework has great potential to kind of help us systematize our thinking in relation to psychiatry and really produce a lot of innovative and, you know, productive and explanatorily powerful work. So that's how I kind of got into it. Cool. Well, what exactly is predictive processing? Yeah, so that is, again, this framework within cognitive science. And the basic idea there is that your brain is a sort of prediction machine. And the goal is to predict incoming stimuli at all scales at all times, if that makes sense. There's extra reception, which is meant to indicate that you're predicting incoming data from the outside world. There's proprioception, such that you're modeling kind of the positioning of your body in the environment at all times. And there's interoception, which refers to the fact that you are meant to be trying to model and predict your own internal environment, if you like. Um, so kind of, you know, the, the signals coming from your own body. And that, that one plays a huge role, a very important role in, in lots of psychiatric modeling. But so, again, the framework uses Bayesian statistical sort of inference. It, you know, it has this very specific cognitive model where you have this interplay with, between top-down predictions and bottom-up prediction error. <laughs> so the top-down predictions are meant to be kind of your prior expectations as to how the world works. And then they're modulated by bottom-up prediction error. So whatever you failed to predict, basically. And the inspiration for this came from something called predictive coding, which was used as a sort of information for transmission efficiency, I suppose. If you think about it, then there's no need for you to encode every single pixel in a picture, for example. You could have a very simple rule such that every, you know, like neighboring pixels tend to be alike. If you just have that rule, you're going to be capturing much of the picture. For example, if it's a picture of a face, you have cheek, 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 and then when the pixel changes dr drastically, it's because it's suddenly hair or it's suddenly, you know, the wall between, oh, sorry, behind the face. And that's the thing you'd be encoding, prediction error, the thing that's not predicted. So if, if you do that, you're actually only encode, encoding the boundaries of the objects that are in the picture. And so by using a lot less 
kind of energy and and you know you could just transmit a lot more information a lot more efficiently so the initial idea was you know the brain is a really energy consuming organ that t- it takes a lot to support it's just it would just be adaptive for it to be as efficient as possible and so there's good reason to think that it would be doing something like that that seems very rooted in like machine learning and computer science right yeah. and then so are people doing like active research collecting data on human beings to kind of support or refute this yeah so yeah so there's a lot of work being done in you know a bunch of areas so a bunch of modeling in neuroscience a bunch of stuff in psychology cognitive psychology and other fields of psychology you know a bunch of work in computational modeling of all sorts of phenomena and yeah it is being applied in ai um etc so it's a it's a very live area that is gaining a lot of sort of excitement or generating a lot of excitement i suppose and how do you interact like interact with this what is your research uh when you do your like graduate student research what how are you approaching predictive processing so i guess my theorizing doesn't depend on it <laughs> it could prove that it's not on the right track for whatever reason and it wouldn't collapse but at the same time it's making some of the ideas that i have they are a lot more specific when they are sort of cashed in this kind of framework. So I'm reading a lot of this research and I'm I'm using some of the modeling in my own work to support some of my more abstract theories without, you know, if you don't have any suggestions as to mechanism, it's it can still be interesting and it can still be thought provoking, but it doesn't have that same level of specificity that you would have if you, if you actually had some sort of suggestions as to the mechanism. What are things that you found? I'm focusing on some specific phenomena, I guess, that aren't studied that much. And they tend to be seen as rather mysterious. And so what I'm trying to see is if I could put forward some sort of mechanism to, again, in, you know, inform our theorizing going forward. So the set of phenomena, I guess... I guess what they have in common, partly, is this strong influence or like stronger than expected causal influence of the mind broadly construed on the body broadly construed. Because it's very intuitive for people that the body obviously influences the mind. But in cases like the placebo-nocebo effects, hypnosis... Mass hysteria, transient mental illness, culture-bound syndromes, psychogenic or psychosomatic symptoms. It's pretty clear that there's something, you know, again, mental, broadly construed going on that is having these quite remarkable and dramatic effects on the body, broadly construed. But there aren't that many explanations out there that would have much to say as to how this is meant to work exactly. And also not that much unifying going on. I think there's something that's shared between these seemingly different types of phenomena. And so that's what I'm kind of investigating and theorizing about, I suppose. And so it sounds almost like the 
I don't know, ideal outcome here might be that you would come up with some framework, some mechanism that might explain that might be common across all of these. And then somebody who would come at it from, you know, more of a, um, the scientific side, the empirical evidence collection side would then be able to take that, um, and say like, what do we know about the human body mechanistically? Like what are the parts of the human body and where can we look for that mechanism in like the physical body and then start to collect data on that? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So this is my attempt at being useful, I suppose, (laughs) as a theoretician to, you know, the empirical developments in, in these fields. Since you, you brought up the, like how the mind affects the body. I also read your article about mesmerism, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And I just like, could you just briefly tell us what what was going on there? Like some of the highlights from uh, your study of mesmerism? Yeah, yeah. So there was this person, Mesmer, who was extremely popular for a time. And so most of his patients would be sort of women, usually upper class women. And he would be healing their ailments of all kinds by just, well, supposedly by just, you know, (laughs) moving his hands around. Supposedly he was trying to move this magnetic energy type fluid thing around that he thought was, you know, was responsible for different kinds of diseases. Obviously, we know that that's not (laughs) really the case, but his work seemed to have some sort of effect. But anyway, so at one point, there was some skepticism, local doctors were upset that they were losing patients. And so there was this commission formed, Benjamin Franklin was part of the commission, he was actually heading the commission by the French king to investigate Mesmer's claims. And so not to get into too much detail, but what they found is that there's no, (laughs) you know, there's no such fluid that's responsible for these diseases. It was mostly psychological suggestion that was responsible. And, you know, some of the experiments are quite interesting. They would basically make some patient believe that they're being magnetized when they're not, and they would have this immense so-called crisis, you know, as if they were being magnetized. Or they could have a patient actually, you know, be magnetized when they they don't know that they are being magnetized and nothing would happen to them in those cases. So, you know, the, the report itself is really fascinating because of how modern it is in some ways. So not only did they have a sort of, you know, some sort of understanding of placebo. They also mentioned something that could be read as experimenter effect, where the people you're studying could be <laughs> could be acting in a way that they expect you want them to act rather than how they would normally be acting. There's a lot of talk about just yeah, just it's it's a very modern and really fascinating piece of work that I recommend everyone read. Um, there's a lot more detail to it, but I won't I won't go on too too long. Other than just to say that although this is the main report, there was another report that was only meant to be read by the king because of its so-called indecent elements. <sighs> and there the commission kind of, you know, pointed out the fact that they thought there was a little bit, you know, something erotic or sensual going on in those seances. 
So, and there was one of their hypotheses was that at least some of those crises from these women, you know, who were being mes- mesmerized or like magnetized by mesmer had to do with the, the erotic element. Again, it's possible that that, you know, that kind of caused the downfall of the method even more so than it being false, if that makes sense. So it could be that the moral kind of dangers actually took precedence over the mere fact that it just didn't work as advertised, which is, you know, interesting to think about. Well, this has been a lot of fun, but unfortunately we are running out of time on the interview. Um, Is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we go? If someone's thinking of like doing a little bit of philosophy or getting into it, there aren't like specific questions that are, you know, prescribed in the field. You could just take the method and sort of apply it to whatever discipline you're actually dealing with. And I think it could, you know, improve (laughs) um, some of the theorizing that people are doing and some of the other areas right because empirical training is wonderful and it's great you also need some theoretical training to see what exactly you're doing and what maybe you're not quite doing yet (laughs) um so as not to jump from what you have to something that you don't quite yet have so yeah just some philosophy education wouldn't hurt if it was uh, taken up more widely. Today I've been speaking with Erte Loketite from the Department of Philosophy about her work on the philosophy of psychiatry. Thanks so much for being on the show, Erte. Thanks for having me. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.